sport administrators, sport fans and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations. Welcome back to part two of our chat with Shiloh Curtis, the current National Female Participation Manager for Golf Australia. Shiloh has already shared some absolute gems with us in part one, so if you haven't listened to last week's episode, make sure you go to the link in the podcast app and check out that episode. We continue our chat here with Shiloh as she tells us a bit about what she is doing within Golf Australia. We hope you enjoyed the rest of our conversation. You're now in a role at Golf Australia, which if I was someone at Golf Australia, I assume that they've come and headhunted you and said you've done such an amazing job at getting women's football in Australia noticed. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at golf and how transferable your experience has been in the AFL world into golf? Yeah, look, the experiences are all really transferable. I think I think my experiences are transferable because essentially it's cultural change. It's transformational cultural change and I think they're transferable anywhere. The, the, the interesting thing with golf that's really different is that internally there aren't the challenges. I'm not fighting the same battles as I was internally at football. In fact, everyone at Golf Australia is... Really wonderful. I think our staff is about 40% female. We're top-heavy male in terms of leadership structure. We know that. And I think that's we know that and we want to try and shift that and be different. And Australia, everyone, everyone really is really, I guess, driven by the collective outcomes that we're trying to achieve in female engagement and in female sport. And I think everyone really understands the greater benefits around creating gender equality in sport and in golf. It's not just about getting more women and girls playing the game, but that actually just is about enhancing people's lives, both men's and women's lives, when we when we create greater gender equality and people are authentically bought into it, which is exciting. And from a leadership perspective, you know, there's a clear direction that if it's if it's about female engagement, it's not necessarily Shiloh's bag. If you're a participation manager and it's female engagement, well, that's yours. Or if it's a female engagement piece and it's marketing, well, that's yours. Whereas when I was at football, if it was female football, everything was mine. <laughs> but there were 140 staff uh, that were specialised for men's football or boys' football. So it's quite different in that way. So internally, it's really different. It's really supportive internally. In golf, it's a little bit different to football where in clubland, I guess there are some greater challenges in clubland to get people to come on the journey. And I don't think the pain point in golf is about letting women on the grass uh, and to play the sport. They've been doing it for about 150-odd years in Australia. and But I think the pain point can be about when we let women on the grass and, and how we let women influence the game. Golf has got some heavy gender inequality that has been, that I guess, that we've inherited. You know, the remnants of such we've inherited wasn't that long ago that, Women couldn't play on weekends, couldn't play on some, you know, on Saturdays. That they, you know, that they had to create their own women's committee so that they control their own women's golf. And they, those women's committees still exist, and there's still a, a midweek women's day of play. So we sort of inherited a lot of the remnants of of the old bad old days, I guess, where women just really didn't have a voice in the game. So how are we now reconciling our past with where we need to go in the future? How are we empowering both men and women in the sport to lead? a much more collaborative and, and gender-empowered future and see that we can do it even better, like what we've got is good, but what if we could be great and we could do that together through gender-empowering our, our boards, um, our leadership structures. So yeah, some of the challenges now in golf are around getting clubs to really understand what it could be in the future. 
we have an ageing population and we have a declining female participation base. So average age of our female club golfer is 64. um, For men, it's about 56, so it's about eight years difference. But at the same time, I talk about that empathy piece and some of the older women, you know, the gener- generationally, there's a there's a shift. And if I think about some of the experiences that women of that age group have had growing up, um, they haven't had a lot of autonomy like we have, and like young women get nowadays around their life. You know, there wasn't, you know, their lives and many for many women, their lives were predetermined or already scripted weren't they they were going to be mothers and wives and their role would be look after children and and families and and the household and and then they crafted out this little space on a Tuesday morning where they could play golf and then they crafted out a little spot for themselves where they got to lead their own destiny in golf in a women's committee and so there's a lot of hesitation from some of those women around losing that because it's been for some of those women the place that where they've had their own agency and their life has been about them serving themselves. So I do have a lot of empathy for them. And I also understand that they remember the bad old days when women just didn't have a voice on club committees and don't have a lot of trust around what the future could be if we start to to get both men and women collaborating together. So we've got a lot of trust building to do with men and women and also just helping clubs and, and people in golf clubs to understand that maybe how we've done things in the past in the game isn't what young people nowadays want. We don't want necessarily to, to belong to an exclusive club and we want places that are about inclusion and diversity and where all of our people, all of our friends and family can feel really welcome and supported. So there's a whole bunch of things in there, but it's a really good lesson. Yeah, good, good lots of good learnings. Yeah, and that kind of um, reminds me, I recently listened to another interview you did and you spoke about waiting for an invitation to play footy and that was a barrier for you. And I think that's something that's also found with women in the workplace, putting ourselves forward for either positions or opportunities. I know there's some crazy stats around men will apply for a job when they hit two out of 10 of the criteria and women will only do it if they hit eight or nine out of 10. Do you have any advice for people that might be sitting there, young females that are sitting there waiting for an invitation instead of kind of putting their hand up, knowing deep down that they probably can do it and do it really well? Mm. I reckon I spent a, I've spent a lot of my career waiting. For, I just if I just work really hard, people will see how great I am, and they'll just they'll give me an opportunity, or they'll they'll invite me in, and they'll just you know I don't need I won't I'll just the way I'll put myself forward is I'll just work really hard, and I don't necessarily think that's how it works. I think you've got to signal your intention and your aspiration. I think you've got to have you've got to have clarity on what your aspirations are. I think in my first year at AFL Victoria, I went along to a a workshop on women in leadership, one of the many that I've gone to over the years. Uh, and Kate Roffey, who's I think is a wonderful, wonderfully intelligent and inspirational, strong, empowered woman. I think she was the CEO, I think, of Vicksport or something at the time. And she did a presentation on career development and career aspiration. And she said, write down what are the top five things, your top five non-negotiables that you want in a future role for you in 10 years' time. Don't write out the job. Don't put the title, like I want to be the CEO of the AFL. What are the things that are non-negotiables for you in doing your role in the future? And so I was like, oh, okay, I wrote them down and I've kept them. They're still, and they're the same. They're very much the same. Leadership, strategy, something I can be passionate about, something that allows me to change the world, a little bit of travel and to be remunerated. There were six of them. And even when it, and, and, and I've always kept them and I've always sort of revisited them. And every time I've looked at a, at a job description or a PD, I've sort of overlaid those 
top six non-negotiables for me with that PD. And the, the role at golf, when I saw first saw the role come up, I was like, oh, God. I was with a, an ex-AFL Victoria colleague of mine and we're having a good laugh about it and we're like, oh, you know, imagine how hard that job would be. And then we started talking about it. I was like, oh, actually. And then I overlaid, when, when, when I looked at the job description, I overlaid those my top six non-negotiables with this role, ticked every box. So I think having real clarity on what it is you want to be doing in your career don't go for the fancy title because sometimes fancy titles come with no weekends, no nights, no senior family or friends, absolute exhaustion, or doing really boring things or frustrating things like lots of budgets. If that's not your jam, don't do it. But be really clear about what it is you want to be doing in your job, in your day-to-day responsibilities. What are the things that call you? And make sure you're really firm with those things and go chasing those things and have those conversations with your managers be really clear about them. You might not say, look, I want to take your job, boss, but it might be these are my top six things that are important to me in future opportunities. If another opportunity comes up or you see the opportunity for me to be seconded or to work on a working party or to be in a project team, I want to get the experience of working on strategy. I want to I want to lead a team of people. If there's a way in which I can lead a working party or I don't – people – are not mind readers. Our bosses aren't mind readers. You've got to manage your relationship with your boss. You've got to manage your boss as much as they manage you so that they know what to keep a lookout for for you. And you've got to drill them on that. You know, when you do your mid-year review, that's about as much, and the end of your review, that's about as much keeping your boss accountable to their role as your leader who should serve and support you as you are being accountable to them. So when you go to your mid-year review, don't just work against your KPIs and say, when you write your KPIs, don't just write your KPIs and go, okay, I'm going to deliver X, Y, Z for the company. I think there's got to be some stuff in there around, well, what's my contribution to that? But what's my boss's contribution to me to be able to deliver that? And then having that conversation with them around that. And it's not, you don't have to be a hard ass about it, but it's about, let's have a conversation about, if I'm going to do all this stuff, I think for me to be able to deliver this, I think I'm going to need this from you, boss. And do you think you can deliver that to me as my manager? And then write that down and hold them to account on that. Yeah, I think that's sensational advice. And I think it's like your your top five non-negotiables or, you know, five or six. I'm going to go and do that, you know, this week because I've never actually thought of it that way. And I often have people say, okay, so where do you want to be in five, ten years? What position would you be looking at? And it's always, I don't know, I can't. You know, whatever pops up, you know, something sparks my interest. But I definitely, to your point, know the area and know I like being in leadership and know I like working on strategy. But I don't know if someone said, but what titles? So I think that's, they're things that will probably never change for me. And that's more of a direction than it is thinking about, like you said, do I want to be a CEO? Do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? And they're actual tangible things you can work on. Generally, no one will ever discover you. You have to discover you and then you have to tell the world that you exist. And men do it really well because they're gendered to be, to stand out from the crowd. They're gendered to be a winner. They're gendered to be taller. They're gendered to be the biggest rooster. And and that's how almost biologically, that's how nature works in lots of ways. You know, the prettiest bird or the the lion with the biggest mane or whatever. They're kind of, they're just always competing, aren't they? And so they're always putting themselves out there. Whereas we're gendered to serve and support and nurture and guide and take care of other people and we're never gendered to put ourselves out there. And we, I hope it's changing in lots of respects. And I think there's a healthy balance of both for both men and women. But I think we've got to acknowledge that we've sort of been ham, hamstrung a bit by that. 
So if it's within our socialisation or the gendering that we get as women, well, we have to really consciously commit to putting ourselves out there. And, of course, it's uncomfortable because we've never been allowed to do it. And that's okay. Be okay with the discomfort. But eventually it becomes comfortable. You put stuff on social media all the time to kind of promote a consultancy and stuff on LinkedIn and whatever, and it feels incredibly painful and uncomfortable. But it's an important thing because no one's going to go searching for me. No one's going to go, if I, if I want to have a future career, no one's going to go searching you out. You yeah. actually have to let people know that you exist. And there's not a lack of integrity in that. But guys do it really well. I think girls just, we hold ourselves back a bit. So I think discover yourself and then put yourself out there so other people can discover you after that. But no one's ever going to come along looking for you. Yeah, that's such a good tip. And so we spoke a lot about the national competition and you got AFLW up and running and you're a big part of that nationally. But what I'm interested in is how did you go about changing, I guess, AFL Vic, the position of female footy from kind of tokenistic clinics, not only to a national competition, but that exponential growth that you mentioned. So I heard some of your stats again. I think you you did a TEDx talk and you spoke about, you know, from 2006 to 2013, there are 108 new teams, 2014, 15, 110 new teams, 2016 alone, there was 100 new teams, but within six months of AFLW, and this is in AFL Vic, um, sorry, yes. the state of Victoria alone, there was 392 new female teams. So that's over eight and a half, to, you know, to 9,000 roughly females within six months that picked up a footy and said, I'm going to have a crack. And so mm. for someone that works in participation, myself, I can only imagine, you know, that probably felt just as rewarding as it was being at the first AFLW match because you're actually having an influence on not only the current players but the future of female footy as well yeah i think one of my one of the things that i I really do feel lovely about i don't live very far from princess park and i walk the dog there and and it's just i just love seeing you know there'll be girls out there having a kick of the footy with each other and i know that i've had a role in 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 crafting that in some way and it's exactly what i should have had growing up but didn't get to have so elite sport is kind of sexy and very glamorous um, to some extent, but there's just nothing better than than people being free to be themselves, isn't there? It's just, and that's what that's why working in participation game development is so awesome. How do we do that? How do you create that sort of exponential growth? I think you've got. I've I've always had a, a philosophy of killing three birds with every stone I throw, and I th- I'm a, I'm a bit of a deep thinker. Ironically, I'm quite an introvert, and so I spend a lot of time with myself, and I spend a lot of time in my own head, and I'm always looking for the layers below. And I'm always asking the why of the why of the why. And so, and I also see opportunity in everything. So if I think about those first 20 girls that came into that academy, that that first academy we ran, and I said to these girls, if we're going to get there, if we're going to have a women's national league, it can't just be me. I'm one person. But what if you all start throwing stones in that pond? You all create your own ripples. I'm creating a ripple. You create your own ripples. And then what about those girls that are impacted by the ripples that you throw? What might happen then? But telling that story and telling that narrative was really important. You can't just assume it's going to happen. I think a lot of the time we just think things happen through osmosis, but they don't. you actually got to be really intentional about it and say, I want to get to here. We want to get to here. Do you want to get to here? Yep, you do. Okay, what's my contribution? What's your contribution? And how can you influence that person to play their role as well? And in, in lots of ways, I feel like it was doing a million-piece jigsaw puzzle and it was about empowering people to come up and put their piece of the jigsaw puzzle down and then encouraging other people to encourage other people to put the jigsaw puzzle piece down so we could create this amazing image. 
But I think we forget, you know, if people that work in game development and, and participation, you are one person. The most powerful recruiters were the girls themselves and their families. Mums and dads, you know, having a healthy relationship with the parents of those kids in the high-performance program so that those mums, when their daughters were also at basketball, were talking to basketball mum and saying, oh, yeah, Ali's playing football now, and then, oh, really, how's that going? And then, oh, it's really good. And so that mother all, all of a sudden becomes an advocate for football, and she starts to dispel any myths that people might have had about football. I'm not having that conversation with that basketball mum. And then all of a sudden, when that daughter comes home from school, from the school football carnival, she says to her mum, hey, Ellie's playing footy. Can I play footy too? Already, mum's been indoctrinated with the messaging that I've spruced to our players who then go and carry the message. And I'd pop the kids full of statistics. This has been our growth. This has been this. You have to tell our story. No one else is going to tell it for us. But you have to be that ripple and create further ripples and throw lots of stones. So I think what I love about AFLW is – there are many adults that built it, but those girls that are playing at AFLW built that for themselves. They would be able to reel off the stats and the messaging and, oh, in 2020, we're going to have a national women's competition. This is where we're at. It's 2013. This has been the growth last year. We've gone from one to two to four to six to 12 academies in, you know, a seven-year time frame. Like, they would know all of that stuff. And I think that idea of if you build it, they'll come, I think it's the reverse. If you And I would say to the girls, if you come, if you all come and you bring other people, they're going to have to build it. Yeah. Like, where else, what else can you do with yeah, it? Exactly. <laughs> massive surge of participants who are awesome at what they do, who love it, but in a community that's so full of joy, what else do you do with that? But put a cherry on the top, which is AFLW. So I think for those people that work in sport development, sport participation, I think we undervalue the role that participants can play in growing our games and being our, our mouthpiece for our messages. And I think you've set out to achieve in terms of this, you know, the national competition and everything else. It's obviously fantastic and there's girls that are living out dreams that they've had forever, but the impact at a community level has been just as outstanding. And I'm one of those people that's been impacted. I went and joined a local footy club and I had the best time of my life there and made lifelong friends, which would be equally rewarding for you guys, if not more rewarding, I imagine, seeing that growth at that level as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think for me, I think the thing that that pains me the most, I don't really like that phrase, but, you know, that, that I feel an intense pain for, like a, a soulful pain, is when I see people who, who don't have their potential realised, you know, who never know what they could have been. And there have been girls that have come through the football program. There's a, a couple of kids that spring to mind if I think about the journey, the life journey they've had and, and, and how their football talent hasn't taken them to places they could have gone because of other influences in their lives. And I feel really sad about that. I could almost cry. I probably would cry about it, to be honest, if I sit with it long enough. Because it's sad for them, but it's really sad for us. Like, I, look, I think about those two players that I'm, I'm thinking of now, and if you watch them play, the joy that those two girls would bring you in just and how they go about their football. You know, we're talking Maddie Press Parkers level footballers. And I think this is a big thing. When we have doors closed to people, what we do is we shut down the growth of the achievement of their potential. We shut down the gifts that they can bring. But it's not just that person that misses out on knowing what they could have been. But we don't get in our community, and I spoke about this earlier, we don't get in our community, we don't get the benefit of that. We don't get to enjoy what you bring because we've shut it down and it never gets a chance to be fully realised. And you think about women are 51% of the population. You think about how many women, how many women's IP, the contribution that these women could have made across the course of history, and we never got to see it because they were stuck in a kitchen 
yeah. and they were stuck at home taking care of families because the script was already written from the moment they were born. And and I, I think what have we missed out on as a society? I, I think there's absolute tragedy in that. Yeah. So if if your if your authentic choice is to be at home with a family and take care of children, and that then you know make make great contributions to our community, absolutely. But I, I absolutely want that to be a choice for you. And so you need to know that there's no door. In fact, that door's kicked off the hinges, that you can just walk in and out of that space if you want to. And that's your choice. And you will not die wondering what you could have been. But I will not miss out on your gifts, the gifts that you could, could have brought to me because society said, no, you are not allowed to come in and take up your rightful place in the world. For me, that's what drives me. It, it's about maximising the collective strengths of everyone in our community so that we all exist in a space that makes such a positive contribution to our time on this earth. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful summary and it's just so funny because my next question was, you know, in 10 years from now, where would you see women's sport as part of our society? And I think that's example you just used of the doors off its hinges is kind of the perfect example of what we want to see and not just in 10 years, but imagine what it'll be in, you know, 50 years and we're all kind of sitting back watching mother-daughter recruits rather than father-son or father-daughter recruits come through the, the ranks. Mm. I think we've still got a long way to go and I think when we you think about sports administration, we certainly have built women's sporting competitions, elite women's sporting competitions for women to play in but men to manage. So if you look at our coaching staff, our support staff, our administration staff, and if you look at the leadership with or not across all of our NSOs, you look at the CEOs, you look at the executive teams, they're all heavily male. In sports administration, sports management, women, there are lots of women at the grassroots that look at the, at the bottom end of the, I guess, the ladder, the, the hierarchy. Women are good at very, uh, women execute decisions across the sporting industry. There aren't very many women making decisions or, or developing strategy in the sporting industry. And so what that means is that strategy that is being that is being put out has a very male lens and it's not a super diverse um, approach to growing community and growing sport. So we need more women to rise up through the ranks and, and we need women to be supported and sustained through family, through having children, through taking career breaks. We need sport. And the way in which sports leadership, executive teams and senior management teams, how they operate, we need them to be more family friendly. We need them to stop smashing up men's and women's time so that both men and women see that as a place that they want to be in and they want to hang in or that they feel like they can do their best in even when they've got family, families and children. The number of women that I know that have chosen to not move into sports leadership, you know, the, the higher end of sports management because it just takes up too much of their family time and they have and these women have been gendered and cultured to have a really strong connection to their families at home and take care of the kids and and be very present for their families yeah I, I want sports in 10 years time what I want sports to look like I want there to be a really good healthy gender balance of men and women leading sport being female CEOs we lost another female CEO yesterday in Joel Rector who's left Basketball Australia you know there's another one that we've lost Kate Palmer's moved on Raylene Castle we lost Lee Russell, we lost. You know, why is it? Why is it that our female CEOs choose to move on? And that's not okay. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're setting up a, a future 
And we talk about inspiration, aspiration. If you can see it, you can be it. But at the moment, we're setting up a structure where women can't see themselves at the top of the tree. And when they do see themselves at the top of the tree, the women go, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm out of here. I'm going to go and move on and do other things. And that's not okay. So I think we need to inherently challenge how we do sports leadership, sport management at the top end, so that it's more, I think it it supports the hopes and dreams and aspirations and needs of of women in the future. Otherwise, we're going to keep churning out a hyper-masculine sport that women play in. I think that is the perfect ending to our chat. I've found this so inspiring. I mean, I could talk to you for three hours, but I won't take up all of your time. We'll have to schedule in another chat in a few years when you're running one of the NSOs and bringing this all to life. Thanks to Charlo for sharing her journey and stories with us. She is truly inspiring and it is so easy to see how passionate she is about developing women in sport. We hope that you enjoyed these two episodes as much as we did. If you did enjoy this week's episode, make sure you share it with a friend, hit subscribe and write a review so we can continue to spread the word about all the great things women are doing in sport.